So we are going through the Bible from Genesis to Malachi, and we are in Exodus 23, in the belly of the Pentateuch. And so if you need a Bible, if you do not have a Bible and would like to have a Bible, you can raise your hand because you can read along with us a Bible. Exodus 23, not light reading. I'm just warning you in advance, but it's part of the Word of God, part of the Word of God of which Jesus said he didn't come to abolish one jot or tittle, it's all for us. And So let's see what's in the Word for us tonight. Let's pray. In Jesus' name, I thank you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you that we can open up our hearts and expose our hearts to the word of truth, Lord, and that we're never the same, provided that we read the word of God and hear the word of God with a surrendered heart. And Lord, we're here tonight because we want to hear from you. We want to see your holiness. We want to see your glory. We want to see you move among us, Lord, even as we're in these chapters in in Exodus. And so I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, asking for you to join us and teach us. Let me not be a hindrance to what you want to do in this room this evening. I pray as well for the rock, the world, and the nursery that they would be blessed where they are the children. Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the children of God have been delivered from Egypt. They are at the bottom of Mount Sinai. They have been given the uh, Ten Commandments. And after the Ten Commandments are in uh, Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 21 begins some chapters uh, that we will see really for many chapters now, including tonight, which really are, uh, you could say, not an expansion, but how does the law work out in everyday life? And so uh, certainly they're not exhaustive here. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament, but uh, just uh, many examples are given uh, in these chapters of how the Old Testament works its way out in real life. In Exodus 21, it started off there just focusing on the dignity of human life. Of course, uh, we had read, Thou shalt not murder in Exodus 20. And so, really goes to the dignity of human life 
here in Exodus 21. Some laws about slavery, about letting slaves go free. Some laws about women who are committed to marriage, uh, who are no longer wanted by the, by their spouse, and and so really uh, uh, women's rights. There's there's a there's a you could you could preach for days and days and days just about how God brought women out of a state of slavery. Uh, the uh, uh, as well uh, treatment of servants here and murder. Negligent murder, the dignity of human life in um, Exodus 21, Exodus 22, property rights. And then it gets into uh, sexual immorality. And then the treatment of uh, immigrants. Tonight in Exodus 23, it moves into really some laws uh, which are upholding the justice system or, or laws preventing the uh, undermining of the judicial uh, system. You know, you can have all the laws in the world, but you, if you don't have people respecting them, and just as important, judges that really honor them, and that the judges administer and execute the law without partiality, all the laws in the world don't do any good. And so uh, there you have it, Ex- uh, Exodus 23. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. And so, so much is at play in the institutions of government. Why do so many countries in the world, why... And it's no longer politically correct to call them third world countries. Why do they remain as developing countries? So much of it has to do with the judicial system uh, being uh, uh, being real shallow. Um, not only the judges who are administering and executing, but the people themselves. Uh, and, and at the end of verse 1 it says do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness and so I remember I will take you back to my childhood my senior year our senior play we did a our senior play was a play called The Visit by the Swiss dramatist Friedrich Durenmatt anyone ever hear of Friedrich Durenmatt. If you have, I will be so impressed. No one. Okay. Well, um, it was a it was a play where this real the, this woman had lived in a city in Germany somewhere, and uh, she had left when she was a youth after being jilted by a man. She had gotten pregnant and he didn't want to have, he denied the child and she goes and she comes uh, comes back 40 years later and she's a multimillionaire. Now you're in big trouble when you've jilted a woman and 40 years later she comes back as a multimillionaire unless she is a spirit-filled Christian. And so she comes and she comes into uh, to the town and by the way, I was the mayor in this play. I was the mayor. She comes to the end of this town and just announces to everyone, I will give you $1 million if you kill this man. 
And everyone's like, oh, that is just the worst thing in the world. How, how could this woman ever, uh, ever suggest such an outrageous thing? And then, but the play happens over, um, over the course of the play, pre, play, you see the depravity of man's heart. And the, the city's in, in a great financial crisis. And eventually what they're doing is they're circulating false reports about this man. And at the end of the verse one there, it says, do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. It's just amazing what men are capable of to twist and undermine the judicial system. And so after a while, they're making up false reports of him, and, and he winds up dying, and they get their million dollars. I mean, it's you know a nice, uplifting play for seniors as they go off to college, you know. Uh, but uh, so important, um, again, if you look at uh, nations who... Uh, who, for lack of a better term, developed nations, the, uh, the, their, their judicial institutions have integrity. They're not, they're not perfect. And you could say we're in a time where they are beginning to uh, crumble. Uh, but so important, all goes back um, to the Bible and the Word of God. It's ama- amazing what happened um, as the Word of God, the Bible, uh, began to be printed for the common man and disseminated wi- widely, what happened to the different countries who embraced that? Verse 2, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You, not, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. And so, uh, in other words, just because a man is poor or a woman is poor, you don't say, you know, we're going to like twist around the facts here because, you know, this poor guy, this poor woman, she needs to have justice in her favor here. But look at verse 6. It says, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. So same thing, because because they're poor, or for example, if the poor is being sued by the rich or vice versa, you, you, you don't favor the rich. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. And so many people um, have correctly pointed out that many of, his, many of Jesus' teachings are not really original to him. They are grounded in the Old Testament, Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. This is grounded in the Old Testament, grounded in this uh, law right here in verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox going astray, you don't say to yourself, ah, yeah, 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 Joe, everything he's been doing to me, he deserves this. Obviously, God is punishing him. I'm just going to let that ox, you know, go off into the wilderness and starve to death. No, can't do that. The book of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, you you need to be, love your enemies, do good to them who hate you, so that you will be called sons of God, sons of your Father in heaven, sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. That's just the heart of God. 
Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you, sh- you should... Re- and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. We read verse 6. Verse 7, keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. The fear of God is what's crumbling and in and being lost in many nations. You get up on the witness stand and it means uh, nothing increasingly just to lie. Verse 8, And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. So bribery is here um, prohibited. It's uh, prohibited here. Bribery, and again, in developing nations, the ones that I've traveled to, bribery just rampant, but it undermines the whole judicial system. Verse 9, also, you shall not oppress a stranger, meaning an immigrant. For you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Verse 10, six years you shall sow your land and produce. You shall sow your land and gather its produce. And here's a shocking law. Verse 11 says, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner, you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. So this principle of the Sabbath, six days you work, the seventh day you rest, it's actually written into the farming laws here where you get a whole year off. You know, I don't know how many times I've heard, you know, Americans complain, oh, man, I wish I lived in Europe or Australia. They get these furloughs or these, uh, uh, the, these times after five years, they get a whole six months off and, you know, and this type of thing. But the interesting thing here is that, so the principle of the Sabbath is at work here that, In other words, by faith, you're supposed to allow the land to rest. You could say you have a whole year's Sabbath of of really seeking and pursuing the Lord. There's another principle at work here, but so that the poor of your people may eat. And, and, And so it says, and even the beasts of the field may eat. There is no record that this law was ever followed. In fact, if you remember the Babylonian exile after the kingdom had been established, Jeremiah prophesied that they would be 70 years in the land of Babylon in exile. And the reason given of why God chose 70 years is that 
was this law for 490 years during the kingdom. They never obeyed this law. And uh, years and years ago, decades ago, no, not that long, but I remember Pastor Scott was teaching on this. And God's law is an interesting thing, you know, because if you just take this one, you have them violating it every seven years. And the first time they violated, you know, you sort of look around and you know, I, I, I really need, I can't afford not to work this seventh year. And, by, and besides, last year, the sixth year was such a bumper crop. Man, there's so much dough. I want to, I, I can't, I can't, I, you know, I need to save up for my retirement. And so, you know, you go and you work the seventh year anyway, even though the, the word of God is very clear. And you sort of look around, wonder if I'm going to be hit by a lightning bolt by the Lord. I just violated his law. Well, nothing happened to me. <laughs> pretty good (laughs) so the next time it comes around next seven years you know well last time nothing happened i'm not going to do anything again and then again and again and again and it's like that with so often with sin this is how so so many of us we have a history we have a testimony that this is this is what happened with the downward spiral. We started with that one joint or blunt or whatever they call it. I don't want to miss. Remember I called marijuana reefer one time. Everyone laughed at me. Whatever it's called today. And you have one and people, you know, you wonder, oh, wow, nothing happened. Or you, or you, or you go out and you have sex before marriage and it's like, wow, nothing's happened to me. I seem, everything seems normal. I'm not getting hit by lightning. But then all of a sudden you're in exile in a Babylon, in the wilderness or in a place of full of idols and you're miserable there. What does the Bible say? How is it to find love? 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4. Love suffers long. God suffers long with you. It's better to be on a short leash, don't you think? You know, when you come to the... You, 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 you come into the kingdom of God and then after a while you start growing and the more you grow, the shorter your leash is, meaning God doesn't let you get away with anything. It's really the, the more blessed life. It's just chastening after the smallest sin. But oftentimes this is how it begins. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work and on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. Again, the principle of the Sabbath written into creation. Well, well, I do believe Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. If you're working seven seven days a week, not only is that physically crazy, but also just spiritually, not taking a day off and just dedicating it fully uh, to the Lord. I believe is a huge mistake. Verse 13, in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. It's interesting how legalism works because people have taken this, uh, I believe in the Talmud and other places, and in, in, you, know, you don't mention the name of the other god. So even though there's this God called Molech. Never say Molech because of this commandment. And that's, that's become a legalistic 
requirement that's really fully nonsense because Moloch's name is mentioned in the Word of God. It's the heart behind this. It's the heart behind it that we don't give place to another God in any way in our heart. Make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Don't be respecting other gods, which are no god, gods at all. Verse 14, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, which when you, feast of unleavened bread and the feast of Passover are sort of used interchangeably same time you shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I command you and the time appointed in the month of Abib for in it you came out of Egypt none shall be none shall appear before me empty the feast of unleavened bread fulfilled by the way by Jesus Christ Jesus is our Passover he was crucified on the Passover. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He fulfills it. He fulfills this feast. Verse 16 has also been fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. It says, the second feast they're required to observe every year and the feast of the harvest, we, what we know as the Pentecost, 50 days after the, um, after the Passover, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field and the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the, f- uh, the fruit of your labors from the field. So that, that wonderful account in Acts chapter 2 where they were... Um, the, 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 the uh, Jews from all the world were there celebrating the Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came down, came upon them. They were speaking in foreign tongues. People who were visiting from other nations were saying, what are these men drunk? Uh, they're, they're speaking my language. And Peter says, no, they're not drunk. And he gives that wonderful sermon, this first sermon, the man filled by the Holy Spirit. It's the birth of the church there. And the 3,000 were were, were saved in one day. Who were those 3,000? They, they, it was the ingathering. It was the harvest. It's been fulfilled. The second one, the third feast... Oh, wait a second. I, I, I think I misspoke here. So the feast of the um, harvest is the... Uh, is is the Pentecost, and that's been fulfilled. But the second, the third feast, I think I misspoke. I combined these two. There's two separate feasts. And the third feast, the end of verse 16, is the feast of the ingathering, what we also know as, uh, been known as the Feast of Booths at the end of the year. This happens in September, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. So uh, the first one in verse 6, actually the second feast uh, mentioned in, which is mentioned in uh, verse uh, 16 is, is the, the early harvest and then the, the feast of ingathering is the, the, the latter harvest. Now many feel like Jesus is going to come back in September because the feast of the ingathering, this third feast, Although I'm sure there's some folks out there that believe that's been fulfilled. There's really been no fulfillment 
of it. And there won't be until Jesus return when the, the final gathering and you'll see that in the book of revelation of the of the saints before the return of Jesus Christ now because this feast takes place in September there are many who think that the second coming will be in September or the rapture will be in September What's the problem with that? Well, in the book of Acts, we're told that it's not for us to know times or seasons. When I first got saved, some of you have heard this before, but I got saved in 1988. And the very year I was saved, the bestseller in the Christian church was what? 88 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1988. And it was was going to be in September of 1988. And I got saved in January. And so this was like a big, big deal. I mean, there was some church across the town that was, I mean, they were basically putting their stuff and, you know, selling their, I I don't know, literally, but they were taking it so literally, really thought it was coming. And and praise the Lord, I had a man who feared God. It was the pastor of our church. And he said, well, no, that, that can't be the case. We don't know when Jesus is going to come. And of course, September passed. And all kinds of jokes were made, you know, what, what, whatever, you know. If, if the raptures happen, that means we're all in trouble or whatever, you know, those kind of jokes. But, uh, but then, you know, people have insisted on continuing to, to set dates and um, it's a big mistake, but the reason they set that particular date, well, at least September um, of 1988, was because of this verse right here of fulfillment um, of the Feast of Ingathering. Uh, there's other reasons why they felt it was in 1988. We will not get into those. But anyway, verse 17, three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So, Males over the age of 18 and older were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year, wherever you, wherever you lived. So that's why, see, God knew all about this. When he knew, he had already, Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world, and he knew that all the people, all the Jews from all over the world would be in Jerusalem at the time of the Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus um, was crucified or rather 50 days it was I, I believe it was it was um, 50 days after he had uh, after he descended into heaven how, how did that work it was 50 days 50 no rather 50 days after the Passover after his crucifixion rather yeah because he appeared for 40 days and then he was taken up and they were waiting in the upper room so uh, Three times a year they were required to come into Jerusalem. Verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall, you, uh, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Are you guys obeying that one? Are you cooking goats in its mother's milk? People say, well, what, what's up with this one? 
the best sanctified speculation is that it was some kind of Canaanite fertility rite. The Canaanites boiling goat in its mother's milk. But this is um, really a wonderful passage really to study how men will take a passage like this and just descend into legalism that completely obscures the grace of God because you can do the internet searches yourself or even better, you can go over to Israel and you'll notice that in restaurants, at least many, many restaurants, they don't have meat and dairy at the same time. They don't serve it at the same time. Lest there be any mistake and somehow the meat get mixed with the dairy. Never mind the fact, it doesn't say beef. It doesn't say chicken. Chickens don't have milk. It doesn't say that, but never mind that. They, just in case somehow goat meat gets mixed up with chicken meat, no meat and dairy served at the same meal. So you'll have, like, maybe, I don't know, at breakfast you'll have dairy products, and maybe then at lunch they'll bring out the meat. But it gets much, much crazier than that. Amongst the Orthodox Jews, let me just read you this. Orthodox Jews take the precaution of maintaining two distinct sets of crockery and cutlery. One set, known in Yiddish as milchig, and in Hebrew as Halavi is for food containing dairy produce, while the other, known in Yiddish as fleshig, fleshidik, and in Hebrew basari, is for food containing meat. Since most Orthodox Shephardi Jews consider the Shulchan Aruch authoritative, they regard it suggestion of waiting six hours after you eat dairy, that is. Six hours, you had to wait six hours to eat meat. Ashkenazi Jews, however, have various customs. Orthodox Jews of Eastern Europe background usually wait for six hours, although those of German ancestry traditionally wait for only three hours, and those of Dutch ancestry have a tradition of waiting only one hour. The medieval rabbis state that the practice does not apply to infants. Now, you know, you can smile and things like this, but actually this is tragic. This is religion. You can go into churches in the city of Boston and they have their, all their human traditions of how to exactly do whatever. But meanwhile, can you imagine if there's this much focus on this one little obscure law and there's so much attention being uh, being given to it on a daily basis. You can imagine that, that pure, simple relationship with God. That's why Jesus says, unless you um, humble yourself to be like this little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You, you guys have lost it. You have hopelessly complicated it just from this one little law. And we all have in our own hearts, the capacity to do the same thing. Verse 20. So this is an inter interesting set of verses. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So he's telling them right 
he sort of breaks off here from giving them the law. He sort of breaks off here, and he's going to tell them about the journey into the promised land. Now remember, this is a year after they have left the promised land. And just by the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, Moses, speaking to the people, I, I, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way in which, and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him. For he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. And so, in many of your Bibles, the angel here is, the word angel is capitalized, as well as uh, the word him is capitalized for the angels, and, and this is believed to be another example of what is a being referred to as a, a, a Christophany, or rather, maybe better put, a reference to the second person of the Trinity, to Jesus. Why, why, why do we say that? Because in verse 21, whoever this is has the ability to forgive sins or to not forgive sins. So Jesus alone, God alone, is able to do that. So just in the midst of giving them all this law, now don't forget, remember, you need to fear God, your holy people. Your holy race, God is raising you up. Verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do anything according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. It's going to preserve them. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. It's almost like a picture of the millennial reign after the return of Christ here. Time where there's no sickness. Of course, they're not going to follow the law. They're not going to follow God. So these these things will not be fulfilled. But the, here, here's a foreshadowing, really, of the millennial reign. Verse 27, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people in whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. So in the book of Joshua... Rahab, speaking to the spies, come in. And what does she say to them in Joshua 2.9? I know that the Lord has given you the land that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. That's what the Lord did. The Lord went before them. 
has put terror in the hearts of the people they were coming against. Oh boy, is a battle a lot easier when people are terrified of you. Fear disables a man. Fear disables a woman. And these enemies, they were disabled just by the Lord, by the Spirit of the Lord just coming upon them. But here, 39 years before, they're, they're, given, they're, they're given a prophecy of what's going to happen when they go into the land. And I, verse 28, I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. So the Lord is going to go before them. I personally don't think that's literally hornets, but he, he's doing something um, really to... Um, to greatly weaken the enemies before the Israelites ever even show up there. Verse 29, while I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And so many Bible teachers and, and scholars view the taking of the promised land as very similar to Christians when they come into Christ that there's an analogy there the land is theirs but the question is how much of it did they want to possess and you guys have the same choice you really do every one of you in here including myself how much of the Christian life are we going to possess as a pastor it's one of the most frustrating things is counseling someone and they're not willing to possess any of the promises that are so clearly have been so clearly laid out for them and for anybody any man woman or child who comes in to the body of Christ we were in it for many 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 moons many months Ephesians chapter 1 that everyone who was in Christ who has received the gift and given Jesus their heart, as we were talking about this morning, that they've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place, that they are in Christ, that they're holy and blameless before him, that they have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins, that they have the almighty God. Paul prays for them in Ephesians 1, Ephesians, that they would understand the exceeding greatness of God's power toward them. If only they will exercise faith. If only they will possess the land of the, um, in, in the Christian life. As a practical matter, this happens over time. It doesn't happen a year. 
as it says here, it just happens uh, bit by bit. And, and, and this is why uh, I personally, on not one single time in my life, have met a mature Christian who is under one year in the Lord. I, I, I've never seen that person. I've never met them. It happens over time. Now, there are times where someone by faith overcomes all kinds of wonderful, uh, overcomes all kinds of wonderful uh, things in their life, I guess, um, obstacles. And there's been great victory in their life. But in, in terms of the deeper, more ingrained sense of pride and uh, anger and these types of things. Whatever you do, don't get upset that if you've been one year in the Lord or even five years in the Lord and you find yourself still losing your temper or whatever. Now I say don't get upset. You should be going to the Lord and certainly weeping before the altar all you want. But don't be, maybe the better way of phrasing it, don't be surprised because uh, the Christian growth happens over time. Verse 30, little by little I will drive them out from before you. I, the devotional that I love so much, Bogotsky, he, he, he has this very interesting observation that God actually leaves uh, the, the, as it says, the, some of the beasts in the land to humble us, to keep us humble. I mean, can you imagine that just uh, what would happen if, if all of a sudden every single sin, a brand new Christian, that uh, they, they overcame everything absolutely perfectly? Can you imagine the pride <laughs> that would come in their life? And, and, and here it says uh, that he didn't drive them out in, in one year because, because the beasts of the field were just too numerous for them. So the, uh, the beasts would otherwise just take over. So uh, little by little, the beasts are, are, are you know, I, I guess they, they can handle them over time as they're increasing. And so um, same thing happens in, in the Christian uh, life it happens um, over time, and and uh, God God knows what He's doing. It's a mystery in many respects, uh, and it, it can frustrate us. But maturity does happen over time. Verse thirty-one, and I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. Dave, do we have that map? Did we? Did you? Did you get that? So this is a reference to it. Interesting again how all this just is plopped, if I can use that word, right in the middle of, of, of Moses given the minutia of law. Then he just comes in with this promise. And so this is it. This is generally it. It's the Euphrates um, um, over there on, on the right uh, and just all the way to uh, uh, that, that area near Egypt. It's called Greater Israel's Borders. That's... Uh, that's really a, a rough estimate, and there's 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 different interpretations of exactly what thirty verse thirty one is talking about here. 
but that's that's generally um, what it is, or it's not an unreasonable interpretation of that. There, verse thirty-two says, "You shall not, uh, make no covenant with them, nor with other gods." So it's referring to the enemies that um, they are going to be casting out. Make no covenant with them. Fortunately, they're going to make a big mistake with. I think it's the Jebusites. Um, they're going to make a covenant with them. So. None of these laws are they going to be upholding perfectly. Thank God that the covenant that they have and we have is based upon the blood. More on that in chapter 24. But verse 33 says, They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. And indeed, uh, they didn't cast out all their enemies. And indeed, they were drawn into sin by these very people that they were supposed to cast out. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So chapter 24 says, Now God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And so some of the priests and the elders are told to start coming up Mount Sinai, not all the way to the top, but they start coming up. Then verse 2 it says, And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses was going to leave them after some point and go up further to, to, to get the law. Verse 3 says, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Now keep in mind, this is before the Ten Commandments tablets were given. So this is a very interesting reference here to another writing. Remember, Jesus refers to the first five books of the Bible as, as, as Moses. It's the book of Moses. Moses wrote it. And so here you have him writing these words. Uh, let's read more about this. He says, He rose early in the morning and built an altar to the, um, at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he set young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. What in the world is that? The book of the covenant? First reference in the Bible to a book? This appears to be the beginnings of the Pentateuch, the beginnings of the first five uh, the first five books of the Bible, perhaps Genesis 1 until up to this point. Now, many commentators think that um, he's just referring to chapters 20 through uh, 23. In other words, what he had heard thus far. But I don't think it would be called the book of the covenant because the covenant was not a covenant of law. It was a covenant of blood as we just saw. Verse 6 says, And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. 
this law, the old covenant, is not a covenant of law. It's a covenant of grace. But it is a covenant based upon the blood of goats and bulls and sheep. It was an atonement until the time of Christ. It says in the book of the covenant, uh, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So really, really interesting. We have a reference to a book here. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Uh, the, the covenant, uh, again, I would argue, could not possibly have been the, only the first, you know, the Exodus 20, the, these commandments that have been recited since Exodus 20, because the covenant, covenant was unilateral, and the covenant was from Genesis chapter 12, where the Lord says to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was a unilateral covenant. That was the covenant. And the law is, um, yes, it's included in this book, but it's a way of expressing their separateness. It's not a, it's not a means to get back to God or to pay God back or uh, in, in this type of thing. Uh, and so uh, verse 8, Moses took the blood, again, reference to a covenant, I believe, which is there's something in this book of covenant about the blood. He took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So anyone who ever asks you what the old covenant is, don't tell them, oh, it was the law. No, it says right here in verse 8. It says, this is the blood of the covenant. The old covenant's based upon the blood. Of course, a foreshadowing of the blood of Christ. Then Moses went up. Also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Oh my. They saw the God of Israel? What then of John 1.18, which says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so, again, it's believed this is the second person of the Trinity, we talked this morning, the doctrine of the Trinity means that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you have, if you're saved, you have a relationship with all three. But here it says they came up the mountain, they saw the God of Israel. So it's believed this is, this is, this is Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, when it, it appears that God is appearing in, in human form. It's, it's the second person of the Trinity. When Jacob is wrestling with a man and that is an example of a Christophany, the appearance of the second person of the Trinity. When Abraham meets Melchizedek, same appears to be the same thing. It says under his feet, uh, as it was, there were, it was paved, um, a paved work of sapphire stone. So sapphire, what color is that? 
blue. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Interesting, right? These are these nuggets here uh, right in the middle of, uh, of Exodus, in the middle of the giving of the law. Verse 11, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand, meaning he didn't destroy them. Why? Because of the blood. Without the blood, we would be destroyed just because of the holiness, the white-hot holiness and glory of God. He didn't lay his hand on them, so they saw God and they ate and they drank. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there and I will give you tablets of stone. Why does God put the the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone? Well, it represents the immutability, the unchangeableness of the Word of God. So often today, it's like particularly, you know, recently, in the area of it's the definition of marriage and sexual orientation and sexual practice. I mean, you know, religion has to keep up with the times. Well, that's, that's, that's nonsense. The Word of God is immutable. It doesn't change over time. It's the beauty of it. So he's going to give them tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written that you may teach them. Verse 13, so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Uh, Aaron's not going to do real good taking care of the sheep. Moses has the heart of a shepherd He's delegating shepherding responsibility to Aaron and her. Verse 15, then Moses went up to the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the, cl- uh, of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So can you imagine all these guys looking up at the top of the mountain? They know Moses is up there. Like, well, what's going on with Moses? It's like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Verse 18, so Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Okay. So we are going to conclude there this evening.